Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast on the show. We've got Dan Watkins, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Burton. On our show today, we have brand new reviews, including Knives Out and The Mandalorian. We are also going to give you our reactions straight out of the cinema of The Rise of Skywalker. Let's start the show. Who wants to start with their recommendation of the week? I'm, I'm happy to start with my recommendation of like, the last several weeks, which is the TV series of Watchmen, which I mm-hmm. am mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. adoring. It is brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we've got here is Damon Lindelof, who is atoning for Lost. <coughs> and what he has done is he has taken the comic book Watchmen and he has made what is not a direct sequel, but kind of something set in the same universe as the graphic novel, using a lot of the same themes and ideas. It's almost like a half sequel, half remix. It's a bit like some of the things they did with Westworld, in that it's not telling the same story. Yeah. It's telling a story that is thematically similar to the original. So we are in the same universe as the graphic novel, specifically not the film. So sort of 30 years after the events of the comic book, which, as we all know, concluded with a giant squid dropping on New York, killing millions of people. There's no more superheroes, but cops are now disguising their faces, wearing costumes to fight crime. Racism is rearing its ugly head in America again. Dr. Manhattan is on Mars which is, I think, where we left him at the end of the comic book, because he's disappeared for 30 years, leaving the world in somewhat of a state of disarray. We meet, uh, is it Regina King, the mm-hmm. actress? Yep. Yes. Who, uh, I think, won an Oscar this year. She did. She did for If Thingy Street Could Talk. Yes. Beale, Beale Street. Street. If Beale Street Could Talk. Mm. She won an Oscar this year for If Beale Street Could Talk. You can edit that you in and that sound that clever. <laughs> <laughs> who is a cop who works with, is it Don Johnson in the first episode? Yes. Because he appears in another of our recommendations this episode. He does. He's been a busy boy. I think it's the Johnson-Nasons. If it was her, it would be the Regina-Nasons, and that would yes, have made yeah. more sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's also one letter away from my penis. John's Johnson. It's quite offensive when people call their cocks the Johnson, do you know that? Yeah, is it really? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so uh, Regina King is a police officer who also moonlights as a costumed superhero. Her boss, Don Johnson, is killed by a mysterious old man in a wheelchair, played by Louis Gossett Jr., who may or may not have some connection to her. At the same time, we have Jeremy Irons, who is playing Ozymandias, or Adrian Veidt, from the original comic, who is trapped in some strange place that may or may not be on planet Earth, surrounded by an army of clones and planning his escape. It's really odd because his plotline for quite a long time doesn't apparently Mm. converge with the other plot at all. Yeah, I mean, if I was going to criticise one thing about it, it would be Jeremy Irons' storyline. So some connections are appearing, but it's also so different in tone from the rest of it. I mean, it's not humorless by any means, but the majority of it is quite serious and dramatic. And then the scenes with Jeremy Irons are just slightly surreal black comedy. Mainly murdering his clones. Clones, yeah, and I'm... Intrigued to see how this all ties together at the end, but there is, there is a bit of a tonal shift. I'm confident that it will all start to tie together and will all make sense by the end of the series, just because the amount of attention to detail and world building that's been mm. put into the series is quite staggering, really. It feels so complete 
and so lived in and immersive from newspaper covers to things that you catch on TV screens in the background of scenes to all of these great, fully realised, interesting characters like the FBI agent who turns up in the third episode. Mm-hmm. She's one of the best characters. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. The name that she reveals is very unusual and doesn't seem to tie in with what we know of the character in the comic books. I'm wondering if that's leading somewhere as well. I have faith that all will be connected and we'll all go, ah, at the end and marvel at its greatness. The initial couple of episodes, you think, well, it's only very loosely connected to the comics, but as it goes on, the ties get more and more. The brilliant way it takes and expands upon small details and unanswered questions in the comic works really, really well. I think there's a reference that the film Watchmen exists within the universe of this show. It wouldn't surprise me because the original Minutemen from the 1930s and 1940s are being portrayed through a parody of American Horror Story called American Hero Story that turns up bit by bit through the episodes. So the stories that we know from the graphic novel exist at the same time. The most recent episode I watched featured a Superman comic so he exists in that world. Or his comics exist. His comics, he, he is, is a, char- he's a character exists, yes. Yeah. 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 If you go back again to the original, they have pirate comics rather than superhero comics. Yeah. Because the idea being that in a world where the superheroes exist, then why would you make comics about them? So they make comic books about pirates, and mm-hmm. pirates stand in for superheroes. Minutemen start appearing in the late 30s, early 40s. Mm-hmm. Which is after Superman. So it just postdates the original Superman comics. And it's when these people start to appear that you go off into an alternate history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I really love what they've done with some of the ideas that you get from the graphic novel and they take them in mm-hmm. unexpected directions. The way the graphic novel ends, again, spoilers, is Rorschach's journal being left in the offices of the new frontiersman and... Certainly when I read it, I thought, they're going to publish it and all of the truth's going to come out about what's happened and everything's going to change. The way they deal with that and the way that Rorschach's legacy is portrayed Mm -hmm. 30 years later was really clever. What he has come to mean in a world that kind of parallels our own as far as Mm -hmm. racial tensions and fringe groups did anyone concerned. feel inclined to go back and either watch the movie again or read the comics again? Yeah, I've been rereading the comics slowly. You forget how densely written it is and how much detail there is in every panel and the amazing way it all ties in. If you haven't watched the episodes because you've never read the comic or you haven't seen the film, you don't need to have seen either I to disagree. get it. Speaking as somebody who watches with somebody who has never read it and doesn't remember the film and loves it, I disagree with your disagreement. So, I, I know, so you, you've watched the film, so you only... I've seen you, the film and I've read the comic and I love it. My other half has never read the comic mm-hmm. and does not recall anything about the film and also loves it. That's interesting. Same situation here. So you've not read... Well, no, I've, I've read the comic and I've seen the film. Judith yeah. saw the film years ago, doesn't remember any mm-hmm. of it. And again, thinks the series is great. That's yeah. interesting because I would have thought you would be completely lost. Not at all, no. Because you don't need to know all those little things. The original characters are so strong, they're Mm -hmm. all so interesting in and of themselves that you don't need to have read about things that are, at the moment, only vaguely connected to them. 
to appreciate yeah, the storyline. I'll be interested line. to see how Amy thinks of the next episode. The next episode that you haven't seen is the only one where there was a bit of chunky exposition at the beginning because right. it's something that needs to be set up and I think they do quite a good job of doing that. It's interesting from our perspective as nerds enjoying it, but it's not a prerequisite, which is the mark of a good mm. series, I mm-hmm. would say. Yeah. Mm. I think episode six was the best episode of TV I've seen this year, mm. where we take a minor character from the comic and we explore his history. I think he's one of the few characters in the comics that doesn't have a very clear origin story. So they've obviously found a little bit that they can go into and... Yeah, their own thing. I would be interested on rereading as you are doing to see whether knowing the extra detail that the series provides adds anything extra to what you read in the comics. I mean, what we do know is they wouldn't have had any extra help from Alan Moore, probably, no. given his I think, I status think Alan, I think Alan on Moore adaptations. Would love it. That's, a, that's a sad thing. I think he would really appreciate it. Has he ever liked anything that's been adapted from his work, though? He's refused to watch anything, I think. He saw League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> well, I don't know what his problem with that was. <laughs> and since then, was just like, no. Uh, he's not even taking royalties or anything. David Gibbons is getting the royalties from this. He just doesn't want anything to do with any TV or film adaptations of his work. Is David Gibbons involved in the series? Because I'm sure Zack Snyder used him in the film to help with production design and stuff like he's that. He's an exec producer on it. Okay. And I think they've bounced things off him, but I don't think he's actively involved. As things sound, we've got two more episodes to go. Only I, two? I hope that, yeah, I hope they land mm. out. You've got three, you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, nine parts. We have been promised that it tells an entire story. You said that before. Yeah. I've got the whole story <laughs> um, in my head, I promise. Not in that sense. He said that each season will tell a complete story, but the amount of money that HBO seemed to have sunk into it, the idea of it just being one nine-episode thing, and then it could potentially be done, mm. seems a little bit strange. I hope it is a series of separate series in a way, because so many of these type of things just suffer under the weight of their own mythology sometimes. Mm-hmm. Westworld, for instance. I mean, it's such a big, well-realised world. I would like to see another story set in that world rather than necessarily this story continuing. Yeah. That seems to be the mm-hmm. implication. But like you say, there's only two or three more episodes where we stand at the moment to tie it all up. And there is a lot to be tied up. In a big bow. <laughs> Again, I refer you to the fact it's them and Lindelof. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> well, they're all in purgatory and there's a polar bear. <laughs> There's a gas wandering about yes. doing nothing that mm-hmm. just gets unresolved. Did get resolved, but <laughs> let's move on. Uh, <laughs> oh, and Tim Blake Nelson's great as well, isn't it? He is. Mm-hmm. He's got a great southern accent as well, which could lead us on to dun, our next dun, recommendation. Dun. Segway. Ah, seamless. I would like to recommend Knives Out, if I may. Mm. You may. So you said a great southern accent and then Knives Out. It's brilliant. Well, the accent. <laughs> yes, yes, it's amazing. Daniel Craig's accent. Yes, really. it is amazing. Okay. Okay. So, Knives <laughs> Out is a, um, a murder mystery film, and it's written, directed, and produced by Ryan Johnson. It's a modern take on the whodunit, um, in that it's set in the present day and features characters like um, Instagram influencers and neo-Nazi trolls, and there's even a Hamilton reference in there. Yes, there is. Conversations about Trump's America. <laughs> it follows a family gathering for uh, Christopher Plummer's character, who's called Harlan Thromby. Amazing name. 
Yes, um, it's his 85th birthday, uh, but unfortunately it's the last day that he will ever live because in the morning he is found with his throat slit by the housekeeper. Murder. There is, there is a murder. Um, oh, what's there? <laughs> don't say that. um so yeah he's got a he's an author um a mystery author very very wealthy got a big house big family who are all there or or, well most of them are there to celebrate with him um but yes things go awry and every family member has their own motive for wanting him dead and then along with the police who come to investigate the crime there is also daniel craig's character benoit blank who nobody knows uh, who hired him, not even himself. He's just there with an envelope of cash uh, come to investigate what's going on. It's an apparent suicide, or is it? He suspects foul play. He does. Um, the film has got an, an amazing ensemble cast, so it includes uh, Chris Evans, um, Anna de Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, um, and Christopher Plummer, obviously. I really, really enjoyed it because it's a really, really original film, which you don't get too much of these days with all the remakes and the sequels. Um, it brings a very well-loved genre right up to date, um, much more successfully, I think, than um, uh, Murder on the Orient Express from uh, a couple of years ago, which was very laborious. And yeah, there's a, a lot of characters who are quite clearly um, having the time of their lives on this set, Daniel Craig being one of them. Yeah, um, I enjoyed him more in this film than I've ever done with him as James Bond. I He's think have- he enjoyed himself more. Great. Not, to, not in a... No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, if, but if, he was having fun. Have you yeah. seen the set photos, them all sort of hanging out on no. the stairs? And it says this is what filming was like all the way through. Yeah, I heard an interview with Ryan Johnson who said that rather than people go to their trailers um, and they were all shooting in this one location, the house for the, for the most part, they just hung, hung out with each other, played poker and stuff in uh, various rooms in the house, which is great. And the other character I really enjoyed was um, Anna de Armas' Marta, who um, is simply the, the outsider uh, she plays um, Harlan's nurse and confident. And the film is effectively told through her perspective for the most part. You feel every emotion that she goes through, but she also casts an aspersion on the other characters because they don't seem to uh, know or understand which country she's originally from. And um, yeah, all yeah sorts they, of- <laughs> they talk to each other as if she's not there and mm-hmm. reveal things that could be possible motives that could incriminate them yeah and because she's just the nurse they mm-hmm. sort of treat her like one of the family but in a kind of patronizing oh yeah. you're one of the family or treat her yeah. sort of way treat her more like a wardrobe yeah yeah come and tell us how you got into this country illegally sort of thing it's a very very modern take on agatha christie um really really enjoyable Ryan Johnson wanted to make this film uh, straight after making Looper, uh, but a, a, a little film called The Last Jedi got in the way before that. Um, but it's it's a very, very scaled down version of Star Wars in that it is uh, most centred in one location. I hesitate to say more of a character piece because I do think that he did a lot of character work in The Last Jedi that he doesn't get credit for. But it is a truly original, wonderful piece of work that I enjoyed very much. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I would happily watch more Benoit Blanc mysteries. Yes. Have him go off and solve other cases. Yeah. Um, I love the twisty, turny nature of it. Uh, I really like whodunits and murder mysteries mm-hmm. and things anyway from, you know, the short stories that Edgar Allan Poe wrote to 
is Sherlock Holmes to classic golden age detective stories. And there's lots of nods to the history of the genre and then taking it in ways you wouldn't necessarily expect, which in a way is a tribute to the genre as well, like Agatha Christie's novels where the least suspicious person turns out to have done it or she takes it in a postmodern meta way that you'd never have thought of as a reader and this film tries to honour those sorts of mm-hmm. traditions and the breaking of the traditions at the same time and balances it really well with well an said. excellent accent from Daniel Craig <laughs> in between. I could, it's just so it's, much it's, fun. It is. It's great because he, he's also an outsider um, having a strong Southern accent because I think, is it North Carolina or somewhere in middle America? Because strong Southern accent people are the underrepresented minority in America. <laughs> No, it's just like he's come from a, yeah, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, <laughs> <laughs> he's very much not like the family who are very um, wealthy and um, seem to be very self-involved and he's yeah. come in from a different side Which, of you know, much, much like someone such as Poirot, who is coming into these, you know, very upper middle class English households and he's Belgian and Christie used that to play on you know, immigration from Europe into the UK, which is surprisingly relevant again. And it's not quite the same thing with Benoit Blanc, but it does set him apart from all the rest of it. And mm-hmm. you need that status from your detective where they're not too intricately connected mm. yeah. to the world where this crime has taken place or not taken place. And Inspector Calls being another example yeah. of that sort of mm. deliberate mm-hmm. social difference between the detective mm-hmm. and the, the yeah. people he's investigating. Remind me of Columbo almost as well, where he was always two steps ahead of where you thought he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It gives off that slightly bumbling image. Not not bumbling is probably not the word, but that's that he's a lot sharper than you initially think. Yeah. He's and a lot I, further ahead. Asking and what appears to be a casual question, yeah. which is actually mm-hmm. yeah. much more thoughtful. And I think the accent actually plays into that a little bit because I love it, but it is exaggerated. It's not Daniel Craig going for complete accuracy. And I would suspect that from what little we know about the character Benoit Blanc, he probably plays up that accent to appear Mm-hmm. to those kind of mm-hmm. people less intelligent than he actually is. I was actually yeah. wondering whether that accent choice was so that he could go, ha I'm not really this person from this place <laughs> anyway. And he'd like be yeah. putting on an accent all the time, but it didn't, it didn't go that way. Mm-hmm. No, but it is drawn attention to, there are characters who compare him to Falcon Leghorn within the film. And so there is, again, that little level of prejudice from the suspects Mm-hmm. That means mm-hmm. he can conduct his investigation in a way that the police have been unable to. Mm-hmm. It's a film I think will benefit from a rewatch to spot clues and things like that. Mm. And I didn't notice many on a first watch, but then I didn't know who done it. Yeah, I'd, I'd quite like to watch it again. I enjoyed it with a few little caveats. I thought like there was a there was a great cast. I don't agree that they all had something to do. I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, some storylines don't get the mm-hmm. conclusion they perhaps deserve. Yeah. And some, I'm thinking of the female characters mainly. Yes. Well, most of the female characters. Mm-hmm. Some of yeah, them Jamie Lee Curtis has a good, interesting ending to her story. There is a lot of focus on Marta, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like yeah. overall it's um, neglecting the female characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I can, I can see the other side as well in terms of they were only there to add a distraction to the main 
yeah casting someone who's a well-known actor is a quite a good diversionary tactic because you assume yeah. there must be something about them did anyone see tinker taylor's soldier spy where colin firth is just hanging around in the background for the first half of the film you go well he's there for a reason mm-hmm. yeah yeah he wasn't he was on the wrong set he was filming fidget uh, <laughs> <laughs> jones next door <laughs> yeah Peter, what did you think of it? I felt slightly, I enjoyed it generally. I felt a bit wrong-footed by it in that I was, I don't know, hoping for one of these intricate, something like a clue or a sleuth, where it's sort of twists and twists and twists and twists, sort mm-hmm. of all the way through. And it, it does a reveal halfway through the movie, mm-hmm. which seemed an odd choice in a way. So you spend a while thinking, well, I kind of know what happened, so where's the dilemma there and where's the mystery of, because we already knew quite a lot of it. Mm-hmm. That slightly undermined it for me. Yes, yeah, so things get revealed um, throughout the movie rather than right at the end. I thought it was an interesting choice. I thought I thought it worked really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it took the film off in a different direction. Yeah. I'm with Peter a little bit on this. Yeah, I think um, I wanted a more bah. Yeah, the end. I I didn't dislike it, but it wasn't what I expected. Yeah. I was expecting yeah. everything to build to all the suspects together in one room, yeah. Yeah. detective goes into a monologue, and then yeah. all the clever twists are revealed yeah. in that, what's Denouement. it called? Denouement. Yeah. Um, and the fact it didn't do that did wrong-foot me a little bit in a kind of, oh, interesting. Uh, but I didn't dislike it. Yeah. yeah. I think seeing it again, I might then see it in quite a different way because then my expectations won't be of something else. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a film to watch with a glass of wine on a sofa on a Sunday afternoon. With a big wheel of knives behind with you. A big giant wheel of oh, knives behind you. Oh, that was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole set was incredible, actually, mm-hmm. with all the, um, the, the paintings and the skulls. and yeah. Yeah, every thing. object could have been a murder weapon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How many, who, how many... Knives. How many, <laughs> a, how many A-list victims. actors who might have been murderers out of ten would you <laughs> give it? I'd probably give it eight, eight A-list actors who might have been murdered out of ten. For mine, I'd like to talk about The Mandalorian. Eee! I've got no interest in this whatsoever. <laughs> <You liar. laughs> uh, this is one of Disney's main weapons to get your streaming dollars every month. In addition to access to its entire back catalogue of animated and live-action movies, which would be great for many parents, Disney Plus will have original series from Star Wars and Marvel universes. It's set in the Star Wars universe and takes place five years after the events of Return of the Jedi, when the Empire was largely defeated. It follows a Mandalorian bounty hunter on the edge of the New Republic. Its first season is eight episodes, each about half an hour long. Jon Favreau has a huge amount of creative control, writing and directing many of the first episodes, working with Dave Filoni, who I think worked on the comic, maybe? Uh, Dave Filoni basically became George Lucas's protege in the 2000s. He brought mm. him on into Lucasfilm. They worked on the Clone Wars film and then TV series together. He spent quite a few years before Disney's purchase of Lucasfilm learning from Lucas and is almost his heir apparent. Oh, right. And when Disney took over, they kept Filoni on. He did Rebels, he did Resistance, and this is his first live action directing, but he is as close as you'll get in Lucasfilm to George Lucas these days. He's really important to keeping Star Wars going after the prequels. Does he have a Nick beard? Uh, No, but he does have a cowboy hat. (laughs) Well, I think that's really paying off, because it really feels like Star Wars. Mm. It has the familiar graphical designs and feel of the world, all the desert planets, dive bar cantinas, familiar species, 
And you also see remnants of the Empire stormtrooper armor and military hardware still all sort of lying around and some of it falling into disuse. And they do also return to some significant locations from the series. Mm. Each story is relatively self-contained, but within a larger arc. Some of them are quite familiar tropes from westerns. You have the sort of village under threat from bandits. The outsider comes in and helps them fend them off. But production values are high. Effects are generally good. Space battles, vehicle chases. Mm. Uh, there, there are maybe one or two every so often. You just notice a slightly dodgy effect. But overall, it's really good. One thing that is available everywhere straight away is the score, mm. which you can get on iTunes in the UK and everywhere that doesn't yet have Disney+. And I have been listening to the main theme song quite a lot. It's really good. It's sort of a little bit John Williams, a little bit Ennio Morricone, and it's by Ludwig Jorensen, who won an Oscar this year for Black Panther. And it just conjures up this world of outsiders and outlaws and bounty hunting and things like that. I really like the music. Oddly, the main theme to me sounds a bit like there's one of the themes from Rocky IV, um, War, I think it's called. There's something Living like that that's very America. like... <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, John, that's the one. Well, Carl Weathers is in The Mandalorian, yes, he isn't is, he? Yeah. Yeah, so is it Hearts on Fire, you're thinking? Of? <laughs> Hearts on Fire. The next episode is just a montage in a montage in a montage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it stars Pedro Pascal in the title role, though you'd never guess. Because certainly so far, he seems to have his helmet on all the time. There is in the end credits. <laughs> in the end credits, there's Mandalorian standing. And I'm wondering, you know, how much of the what we see is Pedro Pascal. Mm. They must have hired him for a reason. Either he's exceptionally good at acting through body language and gesture, or that helmet's coming off at some point. Mm. Well, You'd I mean, think. I mean, actually, I think he is pretty good at the body language mm. and gestures because you don't feel you're missing out, even though you can't see his face. So he must be communicating quite a bit through the limited dialogue he has and his body movements. Have you seen that Casey Affleck film where he's the ghost? No. It's brilliant. So basically he dies in the first two minutes and the entire rest of the film, he's kind of haunting his misses who can't see him. And it's just Casey Affleck with a sheet over his head with some <laughs> two eye holes cut out. <laughs> And he never takes this off for the rest of the film. It's brilliant. Wow. Uh, well, apparently true Mandalorians never take their helmets off. So he says it's this is the, way. the Mandalorian way. Yeah, exactly. So does that mean Django and Bobba are not true Mandalorians? I think they mm. aren't. Isn't one a clone? Bobba was a clone. I thought he'd get Bobba was a rolling clone. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Well, Django's head was rolling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The humour's well balanced. The scripts are good. There's something which is perhaps a spoiler, just as a warning, but it's something that's been all over the internet, and it is shown in the first episode, so I think it's not unreasonable to talk about the, it. The uh, Nick Nolte cameo. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think this particular thing is so widespread everywhere now that anybody who was trying to stay spoiler-free would find it impossible to do so. And thus proving the ludicrousness of region releasing something yeah. over six months' time. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that's the subject of the first mission, which is something who's only referred to as the child in the series, but is actually a baby version of Yoda. Supposedly 50 years old, but he looks like a tiny, tiny little gremlin. <laughs> and he's absolutely adorable. The internet's been going balmy about it. There's no toys until May. Really? Yeah, because apparently there's such a long lead time on mm. making toys. And um, John Favreau managed to convince Disney to not 
release it to the toy manufacturers until the show had been on. Because he because, didn't want... Yeah, apparently a lot of the leaks come from... Lego. Lego and toy mm. supply chains and stuff like that. So they agreed not to do anything until he was on the TV show. But now that means there's a pent-up demand for Baby Yoda stuff. And well, can you imagine how well it'll sell when it does become available? Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the internet moves on quickly, doesn't it? Yeah. But we won't officially see The Mandalorian until the end of March, and I don't know whether they will still release it one episode at a time or whether it'll all be there on launch day, because it is mm. one of the big reasons to subscribe to Disney+. Plus. Yeah. So I assume we'll get it all at once on launch day. The, I well, don't there know. should be other series coming in then mm-hmm. as well, yeah. the Marvel series. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. So I, I've been really enjoying it. How, how did you find it, John? I enjoyed the first couple. I'm still enjoying it. I wish the episodes were longer because mm. you don't get an awful lot and it is more episodic than I expected and it seems to be turning into the Incredible Hulk complete yeah. with green thing. Turn up, solve a problem, go away again at the end of the yeah. episode. Yeah, And occasionally find, oh, I could settle here. Oh no, here come some people to shoot me. I'm going to have to move on again. It feels a little bit like it's fallen into that trope a bit too much, but I'm really enjoying it. It looks amazing. Um, the technique that they've used to film it is very odd. It's a new thing they're doing where Rather than filming it in front of green screens, they're going and they're filming plates and they've got massive HD video screens behind them showing the background. Do we know how much of it's filmed that way? I've, I've seen quite the videos. A, quite a lot, apparently. Right. Because yeah. he has this huge shiny helmet. <coughs> he starts looking at Hazel because he knows how she'll react. <laughs> Is it purple? <laughs> so that means it reflects everything around him, mm-hmm. which obviously would be technically quite difficult because you're going to have lights, you're going to have mm. cameras, mm. all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Quite often when people are filming and wearing shades and things, you'll mm-hmm. squares of light reflecting yeah. in the shades. I, I've always wondered how they've managed to get rid of that yeah. in films. And, they always and um, roll the window down of cars so they don't get the reflection. And when people look in mirrors mm. and things like angles. that. Angles. It's all very cleverly done with angles and stuff. Or twin sisters, if you're Linda Hamilton. <laughs> so, yeah, the, t- the technique mm. John's talking about is essentially huge video walls on every side. It knows where the camera is and what it can see. It moves the images on the wall in 3D to match the camera angle. Uh, so you'll get like parallax and all that all sorts of other stuff happening on those flat screens. If you want to green screen someone, you can have a green screen that is literally behind them all the time and tracks around, but still everything will reflect off a bike they're sitting on or chrome. Wow. Uh, it's mm-hmm. really effective. Yeah. I wonder if that's part of the reason for John Favreau being so heavily involved because he did The Jungle Book and The Lion King yeah, I think he for Disney some... and the technology that will have been employed for those films must mean he knows what the cutting edge is and is going to be. That yeah. might be why they've used it, but I think he's involved probably mm-hmm. as a, more creatively in his storytelling because uh-huh. I think that's probably the main thing. He's I think they, they definitely used some of the technology on The Lion King and he brought it across to The Mandalorian. I'm enjoying it, but... It's not Watchmen, you know. It's not doing in terms it's, of complexity. In terms yeah. of, it's telling a nice, good, linear story. Yeah. It's not changing the world. Tonally, it's a little odd. It's very, very fun, family friendly, and then there's still some odd shots in there. Mm. Which yeah, there's one shot that reminds me of Game of Thrones, oddly enough. <laughs> but I will say no more. Mm. Dan's sitting here with his fingers in his ears. Mm. And then that's when. Yeah, and then that's when the um, baby Yoda gets killed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, Dan. Yeah. Um, I, I would wonder whether the idea of not being one huge season-long arc and hour-long episodes is probably a way of making it stand apart a little bit. Because mm-hmm. you don't often get such high-budget TV shows 
that are only half an hour mm-hmm. long. If I get home late from work and I were to put Disney Plus on, you could watch that before bed, whereas something like Watchmen, you need to have enough energy and be awake enough mm-hmm. to pay attention to it. Whereas, you know, a cool pulpy adventure that lasts half an hour, you can watch that and just stick it on and enjoy yeah. it. And it's not a commitment. Mm-hmm. And I think that is actually quite a nice move in the modern TV landscape. Yeah. Because sometimes you just get bogged down in these big, long things and you think, oh, I haven't got eight hours to watch this one story. Might, might any of this been a conscious decision to go back to the sort of Republic serials that were a source for Star Wars? Yeah, probably. Because yeah. those were, what, 20 minute, half an hour mm, that like was shown the, in the cinemas Flash every Gordons week. And the mm. bus, um, what's the other one? Buzz. Buck Rogers. <laughs> Buck Buzz. Rogers, Buzz yes. Rogers. yes. <laughs> Buzz Rogers is uh, <laughs> the name of Hazel's vibrator. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I said it would made Toy Story, adult Toy Story, but it's set in the mother's bedroom. Woody. <laughs> Woody and Buzz, yes. It's, it's, all, it's, it's all there, isn't it? God knows what Forky's doing there. <laughs> 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 I'm I'm genuinely amazed. I know they want to keep it for Disney Plus, and there's a reason that Disney Plus isn't launching until next year, which I think is to do with licensing with Sky. I think Sky have all. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't want to release half a Disney Plus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I would have thought (laughs) whatever half a plus is line. (laughs) Because we all know that everybody's watched it. I you know other than other than a few people, but most people we know have watched it. And you would have thought that they would have done something perhaps with Netflix or Sky. Yeah. To, yeah. But I guess the other half of that would have gone, we'll have rights for that for the next four years, please. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd have thought Disney would have been able to combat that and go, mm, I don't know. It's Yeah, no, it's an I, odd one. I, I, th- I, yeah. I think you've got to remember lots of people. <laughs> yeah, there'll be loads of people who've not watched it. And there'll be people who want to watch it yeah. officially. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to get Disney Plus. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Not, I will get it for The Mandalorian. Mm hmm. But I'm not going to wait until March to watch it when it's all over the internet every day. I think anybody even who was trying to avoid spoilers, mm. when those memes started coming out, they had a hashtag that you wouldn't have even had the slightest inkling to mute. Yeah. You can block Mandalorian, but yeah. that character has taken on a life mm. beyond the program, and there would be no conceivable way to completely avoid it. The Guardian had an article with the headlines, how did Baby Yoda become the meme of the year? With a big picture of Baby Yoda, and then underneath that, this article contains spoilers. <laughs> yeah. But we had that moment where, that moment at the end of the last episode where he appears, and everyone goes, <gasps> like, we drew breath, and we're like, wow. Yeah. And to not have that moment, I think for a lot of people, is going to be really sad to have that moment so, stolen yeah. for them. <laughs> Which we've possibly just done in some cases. I don't, I don't think. I mean, Hazel, you've been avoiding Mandalorian spoilers. Mm-hmm. Are you attempted to? How long did you manage to avoid Baby Yoda for before you appeared on the internet? Uh, no, not very long. But again, I don't know the context behind it. So I'm mm-hmm. still going to watch it. I mean, I guess a certain element has been ever so slightly ruined in the reveal. But I have no idea why um, he or she would be there. You know, suppose Yoda is the only one of his species. So mm, Yaddle says hello. Oh, cool. Yeah. Member of the Jedi Council in The Phantom Menace. Also, did Lady, Lady Yoda with a nice ponytail. Did Yellow want Yoda fuck? It's did against you... the Jedi code. Yeah. To do that. 
Yaddle only appears in The Phantom Menace, mm. has no lines, and doesn't appear in any of the other prequels or any of Dave Filoni's series. We don't know what happened to Yaddle. I see, I, I've forgotten most of the prequels. You've forgotten mm. Yaddle? Yes. Oh, go back and watch The Phantom Menace, specifically the Jedi <laughs> Council scenes. It's not worth Under it. Under duress, maybe. <laughs> There's a character called Yarael Poof. Oh, He's a big guy with a really long, thin oh neck. Oh my God, and George Lucas was so stoned. Deeper Bilaba. <laughs> if you're going to say, go, go back and watch The Phantom Menace, no, and then you try to just find just the Jedi Council scene. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the highlight of the film. Isn't, isn't that about half the film? It's only bits yeah. I remember. Although, in its defence, that, up to that point, was the most Jedi we'd ever seen on screen mm. at one time before. We'd never seen more than one or two Jedi no, together. Still, still not enough. <laughs> Twelve of them. Can I remind you that Dan thinks that um, The Phantom Menace is only just slightly less good than Empire Strikes Back, so maybe he's not the... Uh, I refer you to the recording of the episode where I said there was quite a large gulf between the two. <laughs> I refer you to that time that Daniel banged his head. <laughs> I went to the 3D re-release for The Phantom Menace. Really? They put a CGI Yoda in the 3D re-release, didn't they? They replaced yeah. it, they put it with CGI. Yeah. And the fixed Jabba. Phantom Menace puppet Yoda's hair was all over the place. It was a right mess. Probably just got out of bed with Yaddle. <laughs> right. Do you have a recommendation, Dan? I do have a recommendation. Uh, this one is set a little bit more in the real world, though one person around this table might consider it high fantasy for reasons we'll, we'll probably get onto. And it's... Is it set in a Labour government? <laughs> <laughs> ah, uh, politics. No uh, politics. Uh, no politics. Yes, it is actually, because it's set in the early 2000s. So Labour would have been in government. Um... It's a series you'll find on BBC iPlayer called Ladhood, uh, mm. written by a comedian from the sketch group Sheeps called Liam Williams. And this started as a radio series. The first one looked at his adolescence growing up as a teenager, and the second series was him as a lower middle class northern kid who got into Cambridge and his experiences there. I'd heard the second series, I'd never heard the first, but this TV version is based on the first series when he's about 15 years old, growing up in a small town called Garforth, near Leeds. Yes, mm, yes I've been. Uh, yeah, I have a very odd relationship to this series because I grew up in Garforth, so I grew up in the very, very small town where this series is set and it's incredibly unnerving to watch. <laughs> yeah, so... It's bizarre. What you get is grown-up, early 30s Liam and things that are happening to him in his life currently. And he then goes back and sees where the roots of that began, an adolescent when he was a teenager. And although the particulars of each episode aren't quite what exactly might have happened to me, I'm pretty much exactly the same age as him, went to school around the same time, went to uni around the same time. And a lot of the general experiences and feelings just hit that personal connection to me. Things that he and his friends do, I can remember that. I can remember what the two local, really horrible, thuggish kids that everybody avoided were like. I remember spending hours talking to people on MSN Messenger because you run out of credit on your texts. I remember <laughs> that one person in your group of friends who really, really wanted to form a band and make music and make loads of money and become really famous and everyone else just not being bothered. I remember when somebody's house was free for a week and everyone would gather around for a party and someone would just take it too far. So a lot of these experiences of being a teenager in the early 2000s just completely hit home for me. And on that level, I really like it. 
as somebody who was from Garforth, mm-hmm. uh, it's probably a whole other level of relationship you might have to it. Yeah, the thing that I found distracting for it is when it gets things slightly wrong. It's like it gets the geography of the town slightly mm. wrong. Uh, but it's so close to like the experience of growing up there. Uh, I think Liam Williams did grow up there. I think he was he's sort of nine years younger than me, so our paths would not have crossed when we were kids. But certainly he went to the same school as me and grew up in the, say, the same area. But just very odd, random, distracting things like um, there is a church uh, with a graveyard that had some benches in and we would all sit and drink on the benches in that graveyard and chat nonsense files and that's there but it's filmed in the wrong church <laughs> it's filmed in the church in the other side of the town to where all the kids from the school would actually sit so, so they have they have gone to yorkshire to film it they have gone yeah it, it's filmed in Garfield, i think so oh, okay yeah it's certainly the shots of it i recognized as as the town but i don't think all of it is the school ties are right but the view out of the windows not of the school <laughs> playing fields. But I think I must be in a very minority position. Um, and had it been completely wrong, we wouldn't bother me. The fact is that it's 99% like the town where I grew up and the people I grew up with, but then the geography is wrong. It's odd how disconcerting it'd yeah. be. I don't know if you remember, there was like a Likely Lads movie once, mm-hmm. set in Newcastle, and it had a bit where they went from Gateshead to Newcastle, but they go the wrong way across the bridge. Yeah. And that just, it's like screams at you <laughs> if you live here. But um, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's my childhood again. Very odd. What I like about it is it's not my childhood particularly, but a lot of issues of modern masculinity, mm-hmm. like you're not supposed to talk about your mental health. You see where that takes root when you're about fifteen, and you're having issues, and your PE teacher is the only person who the school let talk to you about it. And mm-hmm. in the series, his attitude is just go and play badminton. That'll help. Or you get the kid who's really good at English and it's the thing that he's great at and all the other kids pile on him because he's better at it than they are. I believe the phrase was word puff, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> wow. And the teachers are just trying to get you through your exams mm-hmm. because that's all the school needs them to do. And just these things that come up as issues when you hit your early 30s, and you look back to when you're mm-hmm. 15 or 16 and you go, yeah, I know where that started. It's only coming to the fore now, but I can see it in there. Mm-hmm. One of the recurring jokes through the series is he likes to kick bins. When he gets annoyed, he'll find a bin and go and kick it. And you see how that starts. I don't kick bins, <laughs> but there are things I do now that I know started when I was in that age group. Cry with and- prostitutes. <laughs> yes. Um- <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's just re- really clever the way it's v- so specific, mm-hmm. but feels quite universal as well. Structurally, and- it's great. The idea of opening with the present day and, as you say, something, an event happening. So in the first one, it's a fight, isn't it? It gets, yeah. in, a, it gets in a fight in a pub, and it reminds him of his teenage fights. And also, yes, Micklefield was full of wankers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if it'll connect with everyone the same way as it has done for me, but I really, really enjoyed watching mm. it, and I hope they'll get a second series so on ha- TV. how many childhood traumas out of ten? Oh, I would give it nine childhood traumas <laughs> out of ten. I would say don't go in expecting the in-betweeners. It's- no, it's not laugh-out-loud funny all the time. Mm-hmm. It, it's there in a, oh, I remember that, this this is funny, this, and it's really well-written, and it is funny, but it's not gag funny. Yeah, Liam Williams is 
great, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, Sheeps is hilarious. Yeah. You saw, you saw Sheeps at the Fringe. I did, Yeah, yes. so he does sketch comedy in a group. He does stand-up. He's written a book. He's really, yeah. really good. And, um, yeah, one of the other members is Al in Stathlet's Flats, who has his own Twitter account where he will just record these little monologues in the style of someone who's just been to see a Fringe show <laughs> or someone who's an American humorist and the audience. And he did one about an improv group and it's just so dead on. It's the kind of cringe funny where it's more funny than cringe. But mm-hmm. yeah, all the members of Sheeps are very, very clever. And I'm glad that they're all getting these personal projects to sink their teeth into. Uh, catch it on iPlayer if you're interested. Sounds good. We've just come out of the cinema having seen the rise of Skywalker for the very first time at midnight. So we're going to bring you our spoiler-free immediate reactions. This doesn't include me because I am currently salivating over Bradley Whitford, who has just been announced as a special guest for the Western Weekly podcast live Ooh. in London, which I um, double booked. Bradley <laughs> Whitford's going? Yeah. Oh my God, you're going to... Oh dear. It was re- just released on the, their latest podcast and I was in the car and Joshua Molina announced it and I screamed so <laughs> loud. Like everyone must have thought I'd crashed the car, which I nearly did. Just love him as an actor. I'm mm-hmm. so happy to see him in the flesh. You've got quite a big car now, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Will he fit in the boot next to Chris? <laughs> oh, I think I'd make room. <laughs> he can do the splits, you know, Bradley Whitford. So um, um, he's flexible. Bradley Splitford. Bradley Splitford, yes. It is time that she learns her story. So we've just left the cinema and it's now 20 to 3 in the morning, so we're all a little bit stunned as it was, but uh, what, what do we think? What do you think, Dan? Uh, stunned is probably the right word. It is a film that will almost require a rewatch to take in the amount of things that happen galaxy-wise. There's a lot of info to process. I'm still in the process of processing. And did you enjoy it? I think so. <laughs> um, This is always the problem at this time of the morning. Yeah, I haven't immediately loved it as I did with The Force Awakens, but like I say, I think it needs that second watch just to fully get my head around everything that happened and then I'll be able to form a proper opinion. Also, sleep will help. (laughs) And John, what did you think? Well, I I next an espresso martini about half an hour ago because I I thought I was going to fall asleep, so that woke me up for the end. I liked it. I'm not sure I loved it. There was a lot there, it threw it straight in. It got better as it went along. It seemed at the start there was just chucking absolutely everything in there, but I really, really enjoyed it. Bit fan servicey, maybe. But it, yeah, it did feel a bit like Greatest Hits album. Yeah, in a good way. Uh, lots of surprises in there, which I won't spoil, but maybe too many surprises. Oh, can you have too many surprises? What do you think, Amy? Not at all, no. I agree with what everyone else has said. There's a lot to take in. Some really great cameos. That's not too much of a spoiler, I don't think. Yeah, really good. I'm just really tired. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, what did you think? 
Uh, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed it. It was really, really fan servicey, um, but I got exactly what I wanted from it. People will watch it and hate it. Absolutely guarantee it because people will watch it as a, a movie unto itself and go, oh, well, that didn't work and how'd that work and where'd that follow on from? And did... But as a, the end to a nine part epic, I thought it, it did exactly what I wanted it to do anyway. And I really enjoyed it. Really and Louise, what did you think? It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that in depth review. And that brings us to the end of another Nerdfest episode. Thank you very much indeed for listening and hope you all have a very awesome nerdy Christmas as well because this is the last one before celebrations begin. So hope you Wait, get what you wish for. What's I can that? hear sleigh bells. I think Nicholas Cage has arrived to give John his present. <laughs> Nick. Thank you, Saint Nick. Empty your sack over me, Nick. God. Um, yes, thank you so much for listening. Um, John, what are you going to do this time for people who leave us a review? Anybody that leaves me a review is going to get a photo of either one of my nipples or a random nipple that I have found on the internet. <laughs> and if they guess whether it's mine or not, they win a further prize. All right. Uh, that's an incentive. <laughs> of the real nipple. <laughs> yes, in an envelope. <laughs> Big Lebowski style. We're on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we will see you in 2020. But until then, you've been listening to... A man who'll tell you Star Wars was great, even if it wasn't. A man with a very shiny helmet. <laughs> <laughs> a man trying desperately to evade the Disney copyright police. <laughs> <laughs> and a woman with a car with two people in the boot now. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Is that Bye. like... You, nobody laughed. He's on a funny And now we are going to the future past... I don't know. The future now, the past. A long time ago. <laughs> like a long time ago, yes. It's like Blade Runner, basically. <laughs> we are going to uh, cut to our immediate reactions, having just seen the rise of Star, Star Walker. <laughs> <laughs> then we went to the wrong film. <laughs> this is rubbish. Who, 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 what's this Turkish knockoff we're watching? <laughs>